and welcome to Reading the Middle East with Gilles Kepel. Our guest this month is Emirati columnist and researcher Sultan Saud al-Qasimi, founder of Barjil Art Foundation and co-author and co-editor of the book Building Sharjah, co-edited with Todd Rice. Sultan became interested in arts and culture at an early age. As he came to Paris to study economy and finance, he took that opportunity to visit our many museums and no exhibition or art gallery was foreign to him. He also has a great command of French on top of his perfect English and native Arabic. Back home, he started to be interested in particular in the past half century from the early 1970s to the present day when, to quote from his introduction to the volume we discuss today, quote unquote, people of this land abandon Arish or palm farm huts and mud brick homes and before, quote unquote, the advent of 21st century glass and aluminium towers. As a way of introduction to the book and its co-author, I just spent some time in Sharjah last week and I took that opportunity to visit the Barjil collection of modern Arab art where Sultan Saud al-Qasimi has collected more than a thousand paintings of the region, most of them by artists active during those elapsed 50 years. Let's start with a look at the collection in the company of the gallery curator, Dr. Suheila Takesh, also a contributor to Building Sharjah. These two works that we can see here were produced in the 1950s by Iraqi artists Jawad Salim and Shakir Hassan Al Said, who were the co-founders and co-authors of the Baghdad Group uh, for Modern Art Manifesto, in which they um, began to identify and define what a national modern art uh, would look like, what it would constitute, and um, declared that their aim is to merge ideas of, you know, international modernity with local histories and heritage. So, dear Sultan uh, Saud al-Qasimi, welcome to our Reading the Middle East podcast today. As you just saw, as I visited the Barjil collection exhibits in the Sharjah Art Museum after reading your book, Building Sharjah, I was struck by the parallelism of purpose between the artwork that you have so patiently collected and the very contributions in the book. As if you were, in both cases, doing justice to this formative period of modernity in the Arabian coast of the Gulf, as if you were reconsidering the cultural processes at work, which now look somehow completely erased by the super-fast pace of globalization, just like most of the buildings you photographed in the book have been demolished. We shall see the remnants of some of them, which I captured with my smartphone last week, later on. Could you just update our viewers on that phenomenon? First of all, I want to thank, uh, thank you, Professor Gilles Capel, for uh, hosting me here and thank the wonderful team of Al Monitor to which I have been a contributor for a number of years. I'm a big fan of uh, both uh, yourself and the publication. Uh, Professor uh, Capel, I think that, uh, I feel like the world came full circle. In the 1990s, I was an Arab Emirati going to France, learning about French 
culture and French art. And now in 2021, you're a Frenchman coming to Sharjah, learning about Arab art. So this, this exchange that took place over the, the three, three decades, really, of my studying in Paris and then coming back here and creating a collection that can introduce the world to Arab culture, just like the museums that I visited, the Pompidou, the Orsay, the Louvre, introduced me to mostly Western culture. This is before the globalization that we see at the Pompidou today. Uh, and I think you are right. There are parallels between the book building Sharjah and between Barjil. Both concentrate on a period of time that is uh, modern, the modern period, the, the period of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. In, uh, in many cases, these periods have common elements, such as being post-independence. Uh, these periods have uh, these uh, both, both movements, both times, uh, time lapses have a, an element of uh, forming national identity. So you are reflecting a, a sense of national identity through art, but also through architecture. And I am mostly interested in, uh, in post-war modernity of the Arab world, whether it is architecture, uh, art, but also literature and music and poetry. One thing which uh, is also very striking in your, in your book is the influence of uh, Iraqi modernity prior to the 1950s in Sharjah. This is a phenomenon that was uh, first felt in, in Kuwait that sort of predated the crucial uh, states in their path towards opening to, to the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, could you explain to us, and I, I believe you also were, you were in Baghdad a few days ago, could you explain to us what was so specific in this Iraqi modernization in the Middle East of the 20th century, uh, as opposed to the process that was simultaneously taking place in Egypt, for instance, to which we are far more familiar, and how it shaped Sharjah and the uh, adjacent uh, emirates. That's a great question, Professor Kapel. Uh, I believe, of course, uh, Sharjah and what is today known as the United Arab Emirates uh, are products of uh, their environments as well. Uh, we are neighboring to some great civilizations, including Persia, uh, uh, India, uh, um, of course, in Mesopotamia and other civilizations around us. Uh, and we trade over hundreds of years with these civilizations. And there is an exchange of uh, uh, ideas. There is an exchange of goods. There's even an exchange of human beings in the sense that people uh, move and, and they, uh, uh, they immigrate from one part of the Gulf to the other part of the Gulf. This happens uh, with not only with, uh, with Iraq, but Persia and India. Uh, in the case of my family who lived in India in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, but with, to answer your question about Iraq, Iraq in fact played an important role in modernization of the Emirates. I can tell you that the, uh, the private secretary of the ruler of Sharjah in the turn of the century, between the 19th and the 20th century, was a, an immigrant from Iraq. And he was the individual, Rashid Busneda was his name, and he was the individual who noted down and documented Sharjah at the turn of the century. So without this educated, learned, literate man, we would have not have as much access uh, as we do today to Sharjah around 1880s, 1890s, all the way to the 1910s. Uh, and so uh, Iraq, obviously the fact that Basra is on the Gulf coast also helps uh, because it, it's a trade route. 
So people trade from Basra to Kuwait to Bahrain, Qatar, the Emirates, all the way to Muscat and India. So Iraq, due to its proximity, maybe played an important role in modernization of uh, the Gulf states. You know, I mean, this uh, sort of global dimension of Sharjah as an anecdotal evidence that uh, supports your demonstration. Last night, uh, I was in Paris uh, sipping a cocktail at Le Select uh, and in, in the heart of Montparnasse. And then and I was, uh, you know, uh, having your book with me, just looking at it, getting some, trying to get some inspiration. And and the waiter looked at the book and said, "Ho oh, oh, ho, Sharjah, you've been you've been there. My all my family is there." And he was from Sri Lanka, actually. This was funny because you know, even as as if you know the the guy from Sharjah learning in coming to learn and study in Paris, myself interviewing you. You know, there was the missing link was this guy at Le Select last night in Montparnasse. So earlier on, before Dubai took off at this incredible pace and became the sort of ever-growing postmodern and Arabian version of the City of Quartz, you know, to make reference to the title of this famous book by Mike Davis, which he wrote in 1990 about Los Angeles, about his excavating the future of Los Angeles. Before those days, Sharjah, looked like it could have become the hub of the United Arab Emirates. The, actually, the first Air France flights to the area were non-stops from Paris to Sharjah airport. Then Sharjah's developments took another direction from its neighbor. What happened? Was it a decision of the British to, to boost Dubai? Was it a choice of the ruling family in Sharjah? In 1985, as you document in the, in the book, there was suddenly the ban on, on alcohol. And you have some in the book, vivid renderings of the fast pace of the sudden closures of bars and nightclubs in your books. And those were followed by the requirements that Sharjah's architecture retained what you called a rather Islamic, quote unquote, outlook. And actually, when one drives from uh, Dubai to Sharjah, the contrast at the invisible border in terms of markers uh, between Dubai and Sharjah is, is immediately visible from the point of view. I mean, the skyscrapers look different. Uh, also, Sharjah boasted some of the most advanced universities in the UAE for a while, particularly its American university before NYU opened in uh, Abu Zabi and maybe the Sorbonne also in the same Emirates. But altogether, when you talk to Sharjah today uh, in the Emirates, in the expat community, it is first and foremost perceived as the bedroom town or the dormitory suburb to Dubai. And one knows he should avoid the commuting traffic jam uh, in the morning and evening. Could you help us understand the, the whole historical context and how it became like that uh, from your book's perspective? That's actually a loaded question, but I'll try to unpack it and answer it as fairly as possible. Um, let me say that uh, it's important to understand the context of any city or any country or any region when you try to analyze or when the viewers try to understand uh, the historical narrative. So uh, the with regards to Sharjah's development, yes, Sharjah was fairly uh, advanced uh, in the 1950s, uh, 60s, and even 70s 
due to a number of uh, issues. Number one, there was the British uh, presence. And the British, of course, had uh, built a, an airplane and they had their own clinic, they had their own uh, cinema. So they had vestiges of modernity, although just to be very clear that these vestiges of modernity were mostly only open to the British themselves. This is not open to the locals. So there was rarely times where the locals were allowed into the cinema, for example. Uh, and then in the 1950s uh, and 60s, you saw competition come in from Egypt, from Kuwait, from other parts of the region in order to influence Sharjah, because Sharjah was a, an important, a strategically important uh, emirate in the lower Gulf because of the educated population, because of the presence of the British, because of the infrastructure, because of, uh, you know, many historical reasons that made Sharjah uh, an important emirate. And then... Uh, of course, Sharjah was also a, 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 a victim of its own success, right? The sense that the attraction of the Egyptians to, uh, to uh, uh, Sharjah uh, pushed the British to interfere even more. And uh, even with regards to uh, replacing, uh, you know, whoever was in power in the 1960s, they, they came in and actively sought to change the ruler of Sharjah. So, you know, you're sort of a victim of your own success in that sense, that people take interest in you once you are successful, once you are strategically important, and this applies to any country in the world. With regards to the alcohol ban, I think the alcohol ban also needs to be understood in the context of the region. By 1979-80, a number of factors uh, took place in the region, whether it was the Iranian revolution, the invasion of uh, Afghanistan by the Soviets, the takeover of the mosque in uh, in the Grand Mosque, uh, uh, the Haram Sharif in, uh, in Mecca, uh, and many other uh, events that uh, pushed a lot of countries in the region, uh, Professor, to uh, be a bit more conservative. This we saw in, uh, in, in places like Yemen, in Pakistan, in Kuwait, where people were a bit more, and even in Qatar, people were more conservative. And I think in Sharjah's, uh, uh, in case of Sharjah, Sharjah decided to take the, the drastic step of completely banning alcohol. And this was a step that perhaps people uh, locally had, uh, or at least in the Emirates, uh, the nationals maybe may have welcomed, uh, but it did uh, impact the economy of the Emirates. Uh, because you had a uh, revision by the hotels thinking, well, should I build a hotel where I can, uh, where there is a restriction with regards to uh, selling alcoholic beverages. So I believe that that step may have um, impacted the economy of Sharjah, but then I feel like Sharjah managed to find its bearing. And I just want to mention, Professor, one last thing is that Sharjah's, Sharjah's economy is quite impressive. Yes, it's smaller than Dubai. Again, there's a number of reasons uh, behind that and Abu Dhabi. Uh, oil was discovered much later. Gas was discovered much, much later. There was geostrategic uh, uh, reasons or geopolitical reasons. But I think if you consider Sharjah's economy today, it is over 32 or $33 billion. It is bigger than the size of the economy of the state of Vermont in the United States. So again, an East Coast state, a developed state, we are larger than, the, than, the, than that specific state. We are, we are bigger than many other, uh, you know, even countries uh, in the region. And so, yes, Sharjah is smaller than Dubai and Abu Dhabi. I don't see it as a disadvantage. I see it as Sharjah taking its own time and its own pace with development. Uh, and, and this is the pace that the ruler has chosen for the city. And this is the pace that everybody has adjusted to. But for instance, us, 
as my family being investors in the economy of Sharjah, we have greatly benefited from the real estate, from the banking sector, from the insurance sector. Uh, and we don't, we haven't seen really the, the, the drastically negative impact of that decision. As, as I said, it may have been a medium to short-term impact, especially when these large hotels reassess their plans. But I feel like now you see all these new hotels coming up in Sharjah, Sharjah targeting family tourism, uh, targeting more uh, a specific uh, set of tourists than let's say Ajman, the neighboring Emirate of Ajman or the neighboring Emirate of Dubai have been doing. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's other audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. You also mentioned in, uh, in your book that there was, at the same time, a sort of twist in terms of architecture, like uh, guidance, so that, as I mentioned earlier, when you arrive to Sharjah, you know, because you see the, the skyscrapers, quote-unquote, look Islamic. I mean, they, they sort of took bits and pieces of uh, uh, sort of Islamic architectural language that you do not see in the high-rise of, uh, of Dubai. Could you place that into perspective because before we turn to modernity? To, to the modernist style? Yes, so uh, in fact, uh, Sharjah's turn to Islamic architecture started by the late 1970s, but then was codified in law a decade later. So there was some sort of encouragement. You notice that uh, the ruler of Sharjah would commission architects to design buildings like the beautiful Sharjah airport that takes inspiration from Islamic domes and the minaret for example, and this building was feted and celebrated by many people in the region because of the way that it drew inspiration from Islamic architecture. But however, by 1986-87, Professor, uh, this was codified into law. And the way they did it was that the municipality issued a document uh, that was targeted not towards the owners of buildings, but towards the architectural firms that had licenses to operate in Sharjah, telling them that if you want to um, make sure that your design isn't rejected, make sure or uh, try to uh, design a building that took inspiration from Islamic architecture. And in fact, they even gave them a guide of what Islamic architecture looks like. So this is, I think, a prime example of almost a top-down model of, uh, you know, almost teaching architects what Islamic architecture is understood as. And if you look at the document, a lot of it is inspired by the architecture of Cairo. And I have a hunch that part of the reason is the ruler of Sharjah himself had studied in Egypt in the 1960s. And so, you, you know, just like you mentioned me that I was inspired by my time in Paris, that you or who anybody is inspired by the time that they spent as a university student. So I feel 
like this, and by the way, I'm only guessing, this, this might just be a guess from my side, but I feel like this might be the link here between both. So it would be the, the revenge of Cairo against Baghdad to some extent, <laughs> which was the harbinger of modernity, actually. And um, uh, to quote another sentence uh, from your uh, introduction, and this is you speaking, we sought to capture an era that once seemed enduring but now has proven fleeting. So before you answer, uh, let's have a look at this, uh, the following little video I also shot last week in Bank Street, which was the, the uh, beating heart of the modernist uh, city in the 1970s, which is now not abandoned, but it's not central anymore. It's Mutahemish, it's marginal. And in Bank Street, you have all those modernist buildings of the 1970s who stand empty and deserted. Once vibrant offices are to let, with bank signs ripped off, and they just left their shadow on the concrete. Let's have a look at this sort of nostalgic Bank Street era in this little video. So this is Bank Street or should we say former bank streets because most of the banks are not functioning anymore buildings are to let and this was modernist architecture looking at that uh, dear sultan what would you say was lost that could have happened? Uh, yes, uh, Professor. In fact, I was uh, greatly encouraged by your uh, video that you just uh, showed and others that I've seen you film, uh, where I saw a sign that instead of saying to be demolished, it said to rent or to let. And I think this is what we need to look at in the, in the UAE, in Sharjah, is to reuse these uh, buildings, these modernist structures, and save them as much as possible. I understand that it's not always possible to do that. And I want to say that Sharjah and uh, the Emirates are once again victims of their own success. Because of the rapid urbanization, there's pressure to demolish three and four-story buildings and build 10 and 20 and even 30-story buildings because people want to live closer to downtown. People want to have access to certain malls and access to certain avenues. Uh, and I feel like over the past two years or three years, I feel a bit more encouraged because there are laws that have been uh, uh, introduced in Dubai and a law coming up in 2022 by, a federal, by the federal government in order to protect some of these buildings. Um, and maybe just to answer what we have lost, I think we have lost vestiges of our recent past. I think what's important is to think about these buildings as uh, the immediate reaction to the, uh, the, uh, the influx of oil money. What did we do in the 1960s and 70s and 80s? We built these structures. We hired these architects who came from France and from Turkey and from Japan and from India and elsewhere. So what did they produce? They produced these beautiful buildings. And I think we lose a lot when we lose all of them. And perhaps the right thing to do is to balance between uh, destruction and between uh, construction. And there is a saying that I will say, uh, the, 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 the greenest building is a standing building. 
So if we want to talk about sustainability, we talk about reuse of existing buildings. Well, talking about uh, reusing existing buildings, while we speak, we're going to see a third little video, which I wish I shot uh, last year while I'm speaking. Uh, and, uh, you know, Sharjah looks to me as, as if it were a sort of a testimony of the resilience of uh, what my colleague uh, Alexander Cazeroni called the Popolino, the little people or the harbors, in his book, uh, The Mirror of the Sheikhs, untranslated from the French, which deals with the politics of museums in the Gulf. And uh, uh, the, the book documents the resilience of the indigenous society of merchants, of pearl divers, who crossed the waters of the Gulf in their doles to reach out to the other side, to the Persian side. Uh, as we can see uh, uh, in the image uh, now unfolding with all the doles in the Khor uh, Sharqa, the uh, Sharjah Creek, uh, overlooked by the modern buildings of the 1970s and the Radisson Hotel, which ends uh, this little uh, panoramic, uh, which is now closed. Uh, the little flags are due to the fact that I shot that during uh, the 50th anniversaries of the, of the UAE. So this dates the, the video. Uh, and the ruler of Sharjah, whom I happened to meet a number of times, uh, always told me that he was very keen to keep a strong link to Persia and to Persian culture. How would you say, in a time when, of course, relations between the two uh, shores of the Gulf are uh, complicated, to uh, use a, a hyperbolic word. Uh, how, in, in, to what extent did Persian culture contribute, do you think, to the molding of the crucial states, of the crucial state's identity today? Oh, that's an excellent question, uh, Professor Kapel. I think that uh, there is no doubt that uh, this exchange of ideas and thoughts and culture and, 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 and food and music uh, was accelerated on both sides of the Gulf. The fastest avenue in the Gulf until 30 years ago wasn't the desert, it was the ocean, it was the sea. And so we would be able to cross almost on a daily basis between the, the lower Gulf and the upper Gulf, the Arab townships of the Gulf and the Persian townships of the northern Gulf shore. Uh, and uh, I think Iran being a, a, an important uh, uh, civilization and uh, uh, country in the region, I think uh, also greatly contributed in terms of architecture. So if you think of uh, the, the design of many of the, 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 the structures that you see, the towns that you see in the lower Gulf, yes, a lot of it was locally inspired, but some of it was also inspired by Iranian motifs, like the peacock, for example, that you see it reflected in a lot of the glass that, that is shown in the, in the houses. The, for instance, uh, Professor Capel, you might not know this, even though you've known me for many years, the name of my foundation, the art foundation Barjil, is an Arabized Persian word. It's a Farsi word, and it means badgir, which means wind tower. So we in the Gulf Arabized it and turned it into Barjil. And for me, it brought in so many different facets of life that I'm interested in, uh, the regionality, architecture, culture, all of this I felt was, uh, could be summed up in the, the idea of the Barjil. Uh, and so Iranian food, Iranian music, Iranian culture, a lot of the words that we use in the, uh, in the Gulf are Persian words, whether they are seafarers or kitchen, the words that you use in the kitchen or words that you use in the market. 
a lot of these are Persian words. So there is a huge exchange of ideas. And the same thing, by the way, goes the other way. The Iranians read their Quran and pray in Arabic. If you think about it, that is the language that all Iranian leaders must know. And this came from the Arabian Peninsula. So the exchange of ideas goes back hundreds, 1400 years at least. So I would like to, to thank you and end with Ash uh, Barjil or long live to Barjil as a conclusion. Thank you very much, uh, dear Sultan Saud al-Qasimi. And uh, next month, uh, we will stay in the Arabian Peninsula, but uh, move uh, further west. And my guest will be uh, Prince uh, Turki al-Faisal al-Saud uh, on the occasion of the publication of his memoirs from Afghanistan, the Afghan files. In the meantime, if you have not done so already, please sign up for Reading the Middle East and El Monitor's other podcasts on the Middle East with Andrew Parasiditi and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Kaspit on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you all, and let's meet uh, next month with this other breathtaking uh, interview. Thank you so much.